You are on Max's Island, a podcast by Meet Max Power. On Max's Island podcast, you'll hear the lived experiences of people who choose to live life a little differently. It might be a story of when they took time out and dared to do something crazy. Perhaps they made a decision to leave it all behind and follow their dreams. Or maybe they just stopped listening to what other people thought and did what was right for them. This experience becomes a story that is part of them and one that you need to hear. So, now that you're on Max's Island, listen to the wisdom in these stories and you too will be inspired to do what you have always wanted to do. Well, today's episode of Max's Island is very, very special. Today I've got someone who has just walked across Australia. So, Belinda Tay, welcome to Max's Island. Thanks very much for having me. Also today on Max's Island, we've got a co-host. So, Michelle Folks is here. Now, Michelle and Belinda went to primary school together. Welcome, Michelle, to Max's Island. Thank you. Belinda, you have just completed an incredible journey. So I'd like you to tell our listeners about yourself, Mm -hmm. a little bit about yourself and also lead into your recent story. Sure. All right. A little bit about myself. As you said, I met Michelle at at Lee Min Primary. I'm a Perth girl through and through. Went to Lee Min Primary, Rossmoyne High in UWA. So I'm as Perth as you get. Um, Grew up here all my life with my mum and I lived with my my older brother in, in Bull Creek and had a pretty pretty normal um, upbringing. I was never a, an extreme sportsman. You know, walking across Australia, people think that I ran marathons growing <laughs> up or um, that I've always been into, like, extreme sports or something like that. But no, I was a pretty, pretty normal kid growing up and, you know, went to uni and, and did a lot of travelling. And it was... Uh, I finished my degree, uh, I did law and commerce, I finished my degree around the 2nd of February in 2016. And eight days after that, my mum was diagnosed with terminal breast cancer. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it was an interesting time because I was 23 years old. And I guess at 23 years old, you're thinking about an awful lot of things, but becoming a full-time carer for your terminally ill mother is not one of them. So it was a very interesting time. It was very sudden, very, very sudden. Mum had back pain uh, for about 10 years leading up to that date on and off. Uh, she was a nurse her whole life and we just put it down to her having arthritis in her back and didn't think much of it. And, you know, she was the health professional. So we thought if there was something to worry about, of all people, she would pick up on it. But nobody picked up on it. Um, and so by the time they found the cancer, it was already stage four. It was aggressive, metastatic, advanced, triple negative breast cancer. All the best words in wow. one sentence. 
triple negative breast cancer is really freaky because it, the triple negative bit refers to the um, receptors on the cancer cells. On a nice breast cancer cell, you've got receptors that the chemotherapy can latch onto, almost like uh, someone grabbing onto a handle. Um, the chemo's grab onto the handles on the cancer cell and it kills the cancer cell. But with triple negative, it doesn't have any of those receptors. It doesn't have the, the handles. And so you'll be shooting chemo and it can't grab onto the cancer, so it grabs onto other things, which was my mum. So that's why it's so aggressive. Um, she went through chemo and the chemo actually ended up decreasing her lifespan instead of extending it. And was that predicted at the start or was it, that was unexpected? Um, well, what happened was she was diagnosed and then the doctor sat us down and had all the tests and the scans and he said, all right, best case scenario, if your mum responds well to chemotherapy, she will live for less than three years. So that was the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is that she doesn't respond well to the chemotherapy and she lives for less than 12 months. But there was no, like that was kind of the indication, mm -hmm. the indication that was given. Um, and so by this stage, mum had been getting the chemo and she was very, very sick. And the context, in the context of all of that, she had, you know, the back pain. And what had happened was a tumour, a secondary tumour had, it's, you know, it started in the breast and it went all through the bone marrow. And the secondary tumour started growing in her spine between two vertebrae. And so if you can imagine like shoving a marble between two vertebrae in your spine, and then it grows bigger and bigger and bigger, it fractured the vertebrae on each side wow. of that tumour. So she was in agony. Um, and it was uh, between her L2 and her L3, and that's like sort of the bit behind your belly button. And when you've got a fracture in that part of your spine, no matter which part of your body you're moving, whether it's your, your left ankle or your right shoulder, um, it all sort of goes through that part of your spine. So she was in a lot of pain. And so anyway, she was um, in pain from the chemo and her hair was falling out, she was vomiting, she got back pain. and um, She was uh, very, very distressed all the time. And uh, she then, you know, she was waiting in her room for the regular checkup. And this was about sort of one and a half months into her knowing that she had cancer. And the doctor came in and said, um, Marie, I've got your latest blood test results. And I'm really sorry to say that you have several weeks left to live. The chemo's not working. Your blood tests are indicating that you're, um, you're not coming back from this and that you know, you're expected, your life expectancy is several weeks from now. So it's a good idea for you to call your family and get everyone around you before you die in a few weeks. And my mum took in the information and looked at her doctor in the eye and said, can you help me to go quicker? So I'm sitting there next to her. <laughs> How did that make you feel? Oh, I actually felt nothing at, in that moment because all I felt was confusion at that moment. It was the last thing I was expecting her to say. Because you know when in a movie someone says, oh, you know, you've got several weeks left to live, they cry or they break down or, you know, they, they faint or something. And my mum did none of those things. She was just so rational and so calm and so determined and, and very respectful as well. Um, it wasn't a demand, it was a request, like a very respectful, informed request, because mum was a nurse for 39 years as well. Do you so, think she had processed that before? Absolutely. I think she totally knew what was coming. I even think that she totally knew that she didn't have long, really. I think because yeah. she could feel it in her body that she didn't have long. And so she had kind of thought and thought and thought about it. And the reason she didn't bring it up before was because, like most human beings, we all want to live. I don't think 
a huge number of human beings are born wanting to die. No. I don't think a huge number of human beings, you know, live their miserable lives with the intention of dying. I think um, it's a, a really basic human instinct to want to survive and to want to live. So it was only when she had this really clear medical evidence, um, a really clear statement from a doctor saying, you know, your options are extremely limited at this point. And she was just responding as best as she could to, to that. But yeah, at, at that point in time, I was just completely, completely um, at a loss of what was going on. I wasn't upset that she said it. I was just that, ta- I was just that taken aback that she, that she made that request. Because um, I, I didn't even really know what euthanasia meant at that point in time. Um, and now in Australia, the, the debate is around voluntary assisted dying, which is a separate thing. But my literacy around death and dying was zero. Um, I'd never seen someone die before. I'd never accompanied. Like, my, my grandparents, who are all dead now, they all lived overseas. We don't have extended family in Australia. So um, it was a very steep learning curve. But anyway, she made this request and... The direct response to her question was, no, Maria, I cannot um, hasten nor prolong your death. However, we will keep you as comfortable as we can in the hospice. So that happened. And then... Can I ask you, was that a religious-based hospice? Well, um, I haven't revealed publicly the nature of the... of the. Um, no, I'm happy to, to speak about it. I haven't revealed publicly the, the nature of the institution where my mum was. I think the desire for that comes from the fact that my problem is not with the staff or the institution or any individual um, that my mum met or that I met along the journey. I think my I've, my message has always been that my problem is the legal framework that doesn't exist at the moment. And I just I guess I just want to say that the the staff who treated my mum and the facility that that did look after my mum, their care was exemplary. They were incredibly adept and professional and respectful and kind and loving. And so really, I, I feel like it doesn't really matter where she was. There there are some stories out there that are very sad where um, people have obviously received like care that is below par. And that causes a lot of um, distress and pain and suffering for the patient. But my mum was just... It, she was almost like a, a perfect case study in the sense that because her care was so good, the only thing that could have possibly gone wrong was the fact that voluntary assisted dying wasn't available. So um, she, yep, she got that response from her own oncologist, her cancer doctor, and then she was moved to the hospice, which was like a bit of an ordeal because moving someone who's terminally ill is a bit time-consuming. And then she was moved to the hospice and her own palliative care consultant came to visit her and he'd been with her since the day she was diagnosed so from very early on um, she had already known this guy and he came to visit her in the hospice to say goodbye essentially and um, they sat down and they said their goodbyes and then she looked at him and said oh um, doctor can you help me to speed up this process so same thing but different wording and he gave her exact the exact same response which was Maria um, I'm really sorry I can't do that for you totally respect you and love you as a patient but what you're asking for is not legal in Australia this was in 2016 it's not legal in Australia and it's not going to be legal by the time it's your time to go so um I have to decline your request but please rest assured that we are going to do everything we can to keep you comfortable and I'm again sitting there in the corner of the room thinking what the hell is going on and And what was your mum's response to that her response was um no worries, thank you, understand. And then the, the conversation quickly moved on to something else because 
when a person is dying and they've got several weeks left to live, there's a million things you have to look after. Well, you know, because there's no voluntary assisted dying um, law in our state yet. But, um, you know, we're thinking about, you know, they want to talk about her pain management. They want to talk about, you know, her wishes. And, you know, we had to figure out what we're going to do about a funeral. And um, even at the time, I think I went home and, and got a bunch of, like, there was like a bag in her room. And I took it in and she opened it and there were all these sort of trinkets and not like heirlooms, but things that she wanted. She's like, oh, make sure you give this to my sister. I'll make sure you give this to, you know, blah, blah, blah. So there's so many things to organise before you die. And because she died so suddenly or she was terminal so suddenly, there was kind of other things to deal with at the time other than trying to create law reform so that mum could have her choice in three weeks. Yeah. So, you know, she got the rejection and then just kind of got on with her life, the rest of her life. And um, so she was in the hospice. She was getting, uh, she was still getting palliative care, but she was so in so much pain still because of that fracture in her back and all the rest of it. She was still vomiting all the time. She was screaming from the pain. I won't go into it too much, but you know, there's there's details online. Anyone just needs to Google Belinda Tay and they'll they'll find it. But she was very distressed physically, mentally, and emotionally. She was in a lot of pain. And then it got to, it was April the tenth, which was Easter Sunday. Um, I was at home uh, sleeping on a mattress on the floor with my best friend and I got a phone call from my auntie at four o'clock in the morning and um, my aunt doesn't speak any English. She said to me, you need to come to the hospice now because your mum looks different and she's suffering. And in my head I'm like, what do you mean she looks different? I was there like six hours ago and secondly, mum's been suffering since February 8th so you know, I didn't understand why she made those comments but anyway I came to the hospice and my mum was completely unrecognisable she was um she looked like um she looked like a monster essentially I won't go into it too much but she was visibly very distressed and her eyes looked funny and she was making weird sounds and she just was not herself and to this day it's probably and probably will always be the most traumatic thing I've ever seen in my whole life um it was so visceral and shocking that I stood there taking it all in for a while and it just felt like a scene out of a horror film. And I actually had to walk out just sort of in a daze, like just wandered out into the hallway in the hospice and put my head, my forehead on the floor because it was the coldest thing I could find. Oh, um, because I was going to pass out. Cause, and I'd, I'd never had that experience before. I'm not a drama queen. <laughs> but it was just so, um, I just couldn't believe it. And so the nurses freaked out and they came to put me in like a, a wheelchair and stuff and then they woke me up and then they just said, okay, so here's the download. Your mum's obviously on her way out. You want to call your family and get them around and then um, we're going to do uh, this thing called terminal sedation. Terminal sedation is when you've got someone at the end stage of, a, of their life and uh, essentially what they do is they give the person increasing... Oh, regular doses of morphine um, and the, the goal is to sedate them so that they don't feel anything and you know, they basically go into a coma and then they die um, and it's currently in western australia it's the it's it's sort of the last resort it's the last thing that you do to someone there are people who don't require that there are people that pass quite peacefully without the need to go through terminal sedation but if someone's dying and they're agitated if they're twitching and, and breathing funny and stuff then they, they do that so they said, look, your mum's obviously very agitated. So we're going to do terminal sedation. She's going to get her morphine. Um, if she becomes agitated, just press the bell. And a nurse will come and um, we'll give her morphine. 
and please give it time to sink in uh, for the morphine to, to take effect. Because a drug like any other drug, like coffee or alcohol, takes time to, to, to sink in. And um, we'll come and give her more. But um, yeah, just press the bell. So we press the bell, and then the nurse would come and check mum and press the button, and mum would get morphine, and she'd slowly settle down. And we'd wait for 15 to 20 minutes. And then she'd start twitching again and sort of struggling again and breathing funny again and rasping again. So we'd press the bell again, and you've got to wait five minutes for the nurse to come, and then they look at her and they inject her, and then you wait another 10 minutes with mum sort of like twitching in the bed and the bed like creaking and stuff. And she's making all these funny sounds and then you wait and then she goes quiet again. But then she starts twitching again. And so it was this cycle of twitching, pressing the bell, waiting for the nurse, injecting, and then waiting for mum to stop twitching. And then a bit of silence and then more twitching and then pressing the bell and then waiting for the nurse to come and then more injections. This went on for four or five hours. Oh, and five hours. Mom, yeah, and that's how my mum died. Um, she was declared dead at about 8.20 in the morning uh, on Easter Sunday, so a few hours after the sun got up. And she died with her eyes wide open. She was, you know, um, her face was like a, a painting of like a person who has been through incredible pain. And in my heart, I know that she was conscious for a lot of that. And for knowing that that was my mum's last experience of life was really, really difficult for me to, to, um, to come to terms with for a long time. So anyway, she died the way that she did, and then after that it was just, you know, funeral and, you know, packing up her stuff and, you know, figuring out what we're going to do with this four-bedroom house that we grew up in and all this kind of stuff. And um, along the way, I shared with a really close uh, friend what happened. It took me a long time. I had to work through a lot of grief. But I shared with them what happened, um, and this friend of mine, she's medically trained. And she looked at me and she was like, have you heard of... Andrew Denton's podcast, Better Off Dead. And so I was like, well, no, I haven't, so I'll, I'll, I'll do that. Um, so I listened to the podcast, and I understand you've also listened That's to the podcast. That's one of my favourite podcast series mm-hmm. of all time. Yeah. Outstanding. And I particularly love the byline for that, which was, why good people die bad deaths. Mm, absolutely. And why should they? Absolutely. Um, I didn't know much about Andrew Denton. I'd seen him on TV. Um, but anyway, I went to listen to this podcast, and from the moment I pressed play, it was the beginning of the rest of this journey that I've now has taken me sitting in front of you, having a chat today. Uh, knowledge is power. Um, the more I learned about uh, euthanasia, voluntary assisted dying, uh, pa- uh, palliative care, terminal sedation, the more I learned about it, the more I learned about just what's available to other people in the world, everyone except my mum the more injustice that I started to feel and the more that I felt so strongly and so deeply that something had to change. And from where I was standing at the time, you know, I was 23, um, just lost my mum, didn't have... I had, I had really good family and friends around me, but I just didn't feel ready to share it publicly yet. I just felt like um, that I wasn't in a, in a position to, like, you know, be a leader for social change. I just felt that I needed to sort of still process it. So... Um, I decided to go backpacking for 12 months and just sort of work through a lot of, um, just kind of figure out what I wanted to do with my life and then, you know, figure out my, my new life without my mum. And just before I did that, I made a submission to the End of Life Choices Inquiry. Um, basically, the WA government uh, invited members of the public um, to come in to Parliament House and tell people... Tell, tell the board, the, sorry, the, the 
joint committee, which was essentially just like a group of politicians that have been given the task of like, you've got to investigate, do we need this option in WA or not? And so I went there and I, I, I gave them my, my two cents. I think it was more than probably two cents. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was an hour. So it was an, a one-hour hearing. Um, there were 81 hearings and I was one of them. So um, I think they so they received 800 written submissions and mine was one of them. And then they boiled that down to 81 um, submissions. So I did that. And... Um, like I like went I went the whole nine yards. I brought photos of my mom, her PowerPoint. I brought like <laughs> her rosary and all the rest of it. I brought flowers. I had brought white roses to that to the thing, um, and I really gave them an earful. Um, I yelled at one stage, not to anyone in particular, but I really wanted them to feel what I felt. Anyway, so that was that, and I thought that that was me done. So I finished that, and then I went on my twelve month backpacking trip, and then I thought to myself, okay. I want to get away from Australia for a while because I hate Australia because of what Australia did to my mum. And um, I've done what I needed to do. I've made my contribution. I've you know, told politicians what happened to my mum. I went into great detail about what happened to her and why it shouldn't have happened. And I, so then you know, went away for 12 months and I thought, oh, no one's ever going to find me here. I can live in peace. Uh, maybe I'll like, move to, to France with my boyfriend Flo. Um, Flo's from, from France. And I'll, yeah, I'll never have to go back to Australia. No one will ever find me. I was in Colombia at the time when I was thinking this on the top of a mountain and it was so high in the air that every morning we would wake up literally in the clouds on a, working on an organic raspberry farm and um, just to kind of do something a bit different. And then I got this message on Facebook. Um, also amazing that in the clouds you still get Facebook. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Well, I guess you're closer to the... Zuckerberg is everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, I got this message from this anonymous accountant. It was just really dodgy. But anyway, the message said, um, Hi Belinda, I'm a member of the pro VAD community in WA. I've heard about you know, your submission to and advice for us inquiry. We're wondering if, you'd, if you're in Perth. And that was, no. Um, we're wondering if you're in Perth and if you'd, you'd be available to come and help us for the um, 2019 campaign for VAD in WA. How do you feel about that? And I replied saying, well, I'm on the other side of the world in Colombia on an organic raspberry farm. And um, hell no. (laughs) 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 Because it just, I just cried when I read that message because my life was going in a completely different direction at that stage in time. Like I'd just gotten engaged to my partner. We had planned to relocate to France for the midterm, potentially for forever. And then, so to go back to where I'd just come from, where there was so much pain and so much trauma and unfinished business and all the rest of it, when I really just wanted to escape all that, it was the last thing I wanted to do. But after a few weeks of thinking about it, there was really no other option. I had to go back, had to come back. So I said, yes, I will come back and I will help. And so... What did you you think you were going to, to do to help? sure they said something about oh you could be an advocate and you could do some stuff on tv and I was like yeah that sounds all right yeah whatever and it was just quite fluid because it was such it was still so early in the conversation um and then they said oh we've got to figure out where to put you so um why don't you talk to Andrew Denton from Go Gentle Australia and I was like well yeah sure why don't I just talk to Andrew Denton from Go Gentle Australia um so so what's Go Gentle Australia Go Gentle Australia is a charity and expert advisory service 
that it was founded by Andrew Denton. I'm going to get this wrong. He's going to tell me off. Um, so, so let me, let me see hope, if I can... I hope he's listening. So you can tell me <laughs> it, means our, it means our listenership's getting broad, which is great. Um, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll tr- I try not to be fancy about it. I'll just say it how I normally say it, otherwise I'm going to screw it up. So it's a charity founded by Andrew Denton, and the goal of the charity is to improve the conversation around end-of-life choices and dying in Australia. That's pretty much the gist of it. You can say it whatever way you want, but that's essentially what it is. And he founded this charity because um, Andrew Denton lost his father in somewhat of the same kind of circumstances I lost my mum. Obviously something that um, he carries with him every day, just like I, I do every day as well. And I, what I really admire about him is that he's really invested and poured so much of himself into, into the cause, into trying to make things better for other Australians so that they don't have to go through what his father and what my mother went through and what so many other people. On the second episode of this two-part series, Belinda takes us across Australia, from Melbourne to the steps of the West Australian Parliament, and she explains the role that she is playing with our West Australian politicians as they debate the merits of voluntary assisted dying legislation. Each day was a blur, all work and all play, and how, how it had turned out this way. He told me his plan, a short-term escape, five weeks on the Bibbulmun track. Go it alone, no one to blame if he finished or fell by the way. No one's an island, but sometimes it's good to pretend. Go for a hike, your burdens just on the black. Walk on the Every sense was engaged, his mind was as clear as the sky. Completely alone, no emails or phone, and nothing, nothing he needed. 